Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will be in chapter 13 this morning. In a moment, we'll read verses 4 through 6. Well, over the next four weeks, I'll be up and leading in various ways in the worship service, but I won't be preaching for you. Uh, Dan Kruver, who opened our service this morning, will preach for us through 1 John as he shared. I'm eager to sit under the word with you, and this is the month in the year when I'll work on some longer-term things. I have a little queue of projects, the kind of work that needs sermon prep kind of focus. Uh, We'll get that kind of work in June, and um, we'll pick up Hebrews where we left off when we get to July. Hebrews 13, verses 4 through 6. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me. This is God's word for us this morning. Marriage and money. What are these topics doing together in our text? And why are we preaching on them together? A sermon, it would seem like a perfect two-part, and I suppose we could have taken this in two parts, but we're doing it in one sermon. There are two separate topics There are enough different considerations. We could have pulled them apart. They have very different reasons. We have a command concerning marriage, and then we have a command concerning money. Actually, there's two commands each. But then this reason or ground clause for the marriage command, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous, that has one kind of a feel to it, uh, the feeling of lightning and thunder and, and judgment. But then... Verse 5, that command concerning money, we have a promise to to strengthen our contentment. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, that feels quite different. Uh, Two very different feelings, sermons. Well, we'll get all the feelings in in this one sermon. It makes sense that they would go together. Ten Commandments, Commandments 7 and 8, right here, these two commandments. Uh, This matter of greed and and sexual purity often go together in the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, keep yourself from the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. Or another word, excuse me, you don't have to keep yourself away from these people lest you'd have to go out of the world. But he speaks of the sexually immoral of the world and, and the greedy. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother who's claiming to be long to Jesus. Don't show fellowship with the one who is guilty of sexually immoral, immorality or greedy. They just seem to go together. There's half a dozen similar passages in the New Testament. And this is, this is one of them. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Keep your life free from the love of money. And if we zoom out just a little bit on 
our passage, we see that at the beginning of chapter 13, where we were last week, those commands set our attention on our responsibility as a church and as Christians to others. So let brotherly love continue and show hospitality to strangers and sympathy to those mistreated. There is an orientation of the whole person captured by Christ who belongs to his unshakable kingdom, an orientation of the whole person outward toward the good of others. And in particular, in this context, the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, these two commands now, this week, focus on ourselves, we could say. If the first three focused externally on others, now we focus on those temptations in troubles internal to us, where our passions can lead us astray. The first had to do with the needs of others and how we may meet them. And and this morning's passage with its two commands have to do with how we may properly meet our own needs. So they do go together. In fact, we could pull them apart and, and maybe spend more time on each and that would be beneficial. But Actually, by putting them together, they, they self-reinforce. By, by reminding us even that our whole life is one whole life. You can't pull parts of your life apart, even though you may have certain tendencies and temptations that are different from others and may have greater success in one area or another. We're whole people. So all kinds of good reasons to treat these, treat these together. They are together, are they not? Each a source of great joy and pleasure in life, gifts from God. And they are, at the same time, a source of great grief and pain. It is as though in proportion to the blessing they are intended to be, As these gifts are misused and abused and neglected, they become a source of great trouble and pain. These topics can be the most sensitive because we've been hurt the most by them. We've hurt ourselves the most by them. So that's important to acknowledge at the head. But it's just as important for that very reason for us to plow forward and examine what God's word says on these matters. Already we have some insights. If someone suggests that Christianity is all about loving others, not about personal morality, well, it's both. We had our commands last week and we have these more inward commands this week. Um, If someone suggests that Christianity is a private religion without public consequences, well, here we have marriage addressed as a public institution, which we'll see. If we might tell ourselves that Christianity is about invisible things that we believe and and trust in, uh, but we can live how we will. Uh, That's irrelevant, what we do in the body. Or maybe it's all forgiven, so it's irrelevant. Well, it, it wasn't irrelevant to our author here. And our author has preached big forgiveness in this book. And preached big invisible things in this book. And so we see that 
the, the truth that we believe concerning Christ, the Christ in whom we trust, transforms life. He wants to be holy ours and for us to be holy his. And of course, that is good, ever good for us. But even with those little lessons aside, we could reflect on those and we'll skip across them and touch back on them in the course of the sermon. We want to place this little passage in the context of the book to consider that our author is directing our passions for our endurance to the end. Don't drift, don't fall away, don't forsake your confidence, don't leave off Christ. Hold fast to him, your sure and steady anchor. And he is a sure and steady anchor for us in temptation. And he is a sure and steady anchor for us in these departments of great personal consequence. Our author is directing our inward passions for our endurance to the end. Or put another way, our passions, our inward passions, can pose a great threat to our perseverance. Think of the imagery of a ship. And a great ship in high seas. These passions untended, mismanaged, or indulged outside of a proper context can torpedo your ship and take you out. The concern of the book of Hebrews has been apostasy, the sin of apostasy, leaving Christ, drifting from him, trusting in yourself. This is not entirely disconnected from that. It is not unusual that when we find ourselves wandering from the truth, or you find a brother and a sister or a sister wandering from the truth, You may presume there is a matter of sin with money or sex not far under the surface. In fact, one of those sins that gave rise to a drifting and a departing from Christ. And so we see that there is a lot at stake here. And it's important that I mention this personally, that I, as your preacher and your elders, are not exempt from these temptations and troubles. I, too, am tempted as a man, to covet my neighbor's wife. I, too, as a fellow human, am tempted to covet my neighbor's things, to want what is not mine, to desire to take what is not mine. And on some days, it seems like it's smooth sailing. I feel like a great Christian, obeying. And on some days, it's choppy waters around me, in my own heart, I grew up and parents had a boat and there's one or two memories. I have one memory of getting stung by a bee. Uh, and then my other memory, this is it's on Lake Erie. Another memory is when we got descended upon by flies. Uh, I want to say in my memory, you couldn't even see anybody else on the boat because there were so many, they were everywhere, uh, surrounded out at sea at times in this Christian life, on this pilgrimage, we can feel surrounded by temptations. Yes, from without, but even from within. And I need this passage like we all need this passage this morning. So hear this from a fellow sinner and a fellow traveler. 
Well, one thing we say in our house and uh, keep, you know, do an okay job at, um, everything has a place, everything in its place. Everything has a place, everything in its place. Marriage and money. If we can get marriage and money in its place, that'll do us and everyone in our lives a lot of good. And that's what we're after this morning, to, to get marriage and money in its place. That's what the author is doing. Because marriage and sex is not a problem, becomes a problem because of our sin. Money is not a problem. It becomes a problem because of our sin. We, as sinners, are great at utterly destroying ourselves and many others along the way with the best of God's gifts. We're really good at this. Destroying our own lives and the lives of many others with the best of God's gifts. And it is true that as we come to Christ, so those great gifts can become a great blessing to us and through us to many others. We have two commands this morning and then a reason for great confidence. Our first command. And here we are putting marriage in its place. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor by all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So for this first topic, there are two commands. We have a positive, let marriage be held in honor among all, and a negative command, let the marriage bed be undefiled. It's positive, but it's negative-ish. You follow me? So these two go together to provide a sharp, a sharp, a razor-sharp command. And we get a little precision on what he's after and why this command is needed with that ground clause there, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We could have said the sermons about sex and money, marriages, is that great goal of the first command here, and so I've held out marriage as prominent. Uh, One of you lives in a home that was previously occupied by hoarders and purchased that home at an an auction and got many of the things that were in the home and in the shed in the back that was built to house more things and in the carport that was built to house yet more things and the attic which housed many things. There was a whole attic full or nearly full of brooms. Uh, So we laugh, but um, no, that is weird. That's really weird. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Um, I was going to say, all of us, no. No, no, no. All of our sin is that weird. But um, or, or a shed in the back with bin after bin after bin of uh, burnt-out fluorescent lights. Something's going on there. There is an overvaluing of something that is not valuable at all or is only kind of valuable. As sinners, we also can significantly undervalue something that is of tremendous value. And that is the issue here with marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. 
<clears throat> honor or, or let marriage be prized and treasured. Same word for precious stones. It's special. It's precious. It's, it's valuable. That's what marriage is. And so let us hold it in great honor as such a great treasure. And note that he does not address uh, your marriage, and he does not address marriages, plural. He addresses marriage. Let marriage be held in honor. This is the only instance in our New Testament where marriage is referred to as the thing of marriage, the institution of marriage, apart from someone's marriage. This is a reference to the institution of marriage, and so it is an institution, and it is to be prized. The second part of the passage here, which we'll get to shortly, let the marriage bed be undefiled, refers to that intimate part of marriage. The first part of the verse, let marriage be held in honor among all, refers to that public part of marriage, the institution of marriage. So let's put it this way. We're to prize the institution of marriage and we're to protect the intimacy of the marriage bed. We'll take each of those in turn and spend the most of our time this morning under this area of marriage. We're to prize the institution of marriage. Five reasons. Marriage is made by God. Marriage is created. It's created. It is not, as my sociology teacher taught us way back in 97 or 98, Mrs. Sears, marriage is not a social construct that arose in the context of human society as something useful, but that human society can change or redefine. Marriage is created, not socially constructed. Marriage is a pre-political institution. That means when you have no government or state, you still have marriage. The state merely acknowledges marriage. The state has no right without doing violence to basic justice and to humanity The state has no right to redefine marriage or to broaden what it means and therefore to undermine its central meaning altogether. This is why we speak about gay marriage and we put marriage in quotations. There is no such thing. By tricks of words, it will never be possible to marry, for those with ears to hear, a bolt to a bolt. They do not marry. Or a nut to a nut. They do not marry. The definition is in the word. If the word is captured and redefined, marriage still remains. It is a reality that cuts with the grain of the created universe in the way that men and women were made to go together. And as an institution created by God, it is a holy gift 
to us from the living God for which every human is blessed by and through, even if they are not married, and by which every human is accountable to the God of heaven to give thanks. Marriage is made by God. Marriage makes life better. From the very first page of the Bible, it was not good that Adam was alone, that man was alone. Everything else was good. God made something that wasn't good, and he delayed the finishing of that something so that Adam would understand his need for a wife, someone like him but different that goes with him, a match to him. And when God created the woman, they were naked and not ashamed, and they were blessed of heaven, and it was very good. Companionship and partnership. Humanity given the mandate to have dominion over the whole earth. There is the creator and the creation, but we could add another level to this. There's the creator and those whom he's created in his image, humanity, and then there is the creation. And the creator has given the creation to humanity to have dominion over it, to be fruitful and to multiply. And he has made man in his image, male and female, so that they might have dominion together and be fruitful and multiply. Something that could not and would not happen were there not two that went together. This is the life that God gives, and he has given it to humanity, male and female. And in the normal circumstances, male and female will be paired together in marriage. The institution of marriage is made by God. It it makes life better. All the qualifications, of course, need to be assumed there that in the new covenant in Christ, God blesses us with, with Christ, that marriage won't be with us in the new creation, that if we have the Holy Spirit and in God's providence, he doesn't lead us to marriage, that is something we entrust to him. Nevertheless, marriage is not expendable and small and tertiary, but important. Marriage also makes life. It makes life. The Lord has made the woman and her body in the normal circumstances to be fruitful, to be the source of new life. Men have their superpowers. My son and I were busting up part of the basement yesterday we're going to do something with, and Christy didn't even think about joining us. She'd probably do just fine. Uh, no, I just took care of that. And, and I grabbed him. I didn't grab Shay or Madeline, although I do grab them for those kinds of things too. We're not overly narrow in our understanding of, of what a, a woman can or should do. The Proverbs 31 woman was busy with all kinds of things with her physical body. But the real superpower of women is to be able to bear the fruit of a human and to nurse a human to life after she grows it in her, her womb. And the proper context and soil for that woman to do that delicate work of knitting a baby together in her womb is a marriage to a man who would protect her and keep her and care for her and nurture her and provide for her. Men are not given to nurse life in a womb 
for nine months and then nurse that life uh, to health and maturity. No, we have these baked into creation complementary roles, and they're amazing. Marriage is that soil, that context for the fruitfulness of women. God did not decide to uh, have us lay eggs. For months, I did not understand why the toddlers would gather up these giant rocks that we have in the front of the house and put them in this little cart and drag them around and talk about their babies. I thought, goodness, these are not, don't look anything like babies, but they'll figure it out. And then one of them sat down on one of them and like, got it, the eggs. <laughs> they'll figure it out. That's not how God decided to do it. He didn't decide to have us divide like cells. He could have done that. He had it happen this way. So marriage is an institution made by God. It makes life better. It, it makes life and it makes, it makes sense. We, we hold marriage in honor because marriage holds men and women together, in particular holds men to their wives and the mothers of their children. We hold marriage in honor because marriage holds parents and their children together. If a human has any right to receive something from someone else, it simply must be that children have a right to the nurture and the care of the man and the woman that brought them into the world. And if we owe something to anybody else, it makes only sense that at the most basic level, we owe nurture and care and ourselves to those other humans that we bring into the world. Marriage is the only institution that holds parents together with their children. Marriage is for personal pleasure and companionship. But we must not so emphasize that personal emotional companionship, how it's going for me, satisfaction, to the detriment of the children that marriage brings into the world. And so as we counsel each other in our marriages... Let us counsel each other as to how we can live well together and enjoy our marriages. Let us help with one another with our grief as we deal with what is lost. And let us be very careful as to how those conversations get opened up. But let us not forget the children that God gave marriage for in part. And children, which are part of the reason God has given the gift of marriage in the first place. Marriage makes sense that in this world, as the grain of the world goes, men and women come together to make a whole human. And does it not just make good sense that if they come together to make a human, that that human would be born into the safety of a mutual commitment of a mother and a father? Now, death and sin and tragic circumstances are the explanation for why there are many exceptions to this, but this is part of what we pray for and work for in the church to help each other with. 
and we hold marriage in honor because marriage holds society together. You really can't play with, with the threads and still have fabric. We of all people, with this word from God, not just natural revelation, must insist that marriage is a foundation for the good of society. It is not a private preference or a personal religious conviction. It is basic to human life. It is discernible through nature. It is revealed plainly by the God of heaven in his word. It makes sense. It's also why it's made public. Let marriage be held in honor among all. When a marriage is inaugurated and a marriage ceremony, the couple knows they're married and everyone else knows they're married. And that is how it is supposed to be. The consummation of the marriage in private that evening is not where the marriage is made. All of this goes together as part of an appropriate day of events, some public, some private. But it's appropriate that there are public vows given before others for marriage is a public institution, not merely a private engagement. Okay, so there's a one-on-one on marriage. A needed refresher. Good and true things we need to hear over and again so we can give thanks to God for them and walk together in them. So how are we doing on marriage as a church? How are you doing in your marriage, Christian? How do we talk about marriage? It occurs to me that I can fall into being unthankful Just like I may not give thanks to God for the sun when it comes up or for keeping me alive while I slept or for feeding me every day or for a house, it's easy not to give thanks to God for his greatest gift to me besides life and new life itself in my wife. So how do you talk about marriage? Are your words concerning marriage Words of thankfulness and esteem and value and honor as this is the institution, apart from your specific spouse, a very precious gift from God to you. Let us talk about marriage like it is a wonderful treasure. Let us defend marriage in the public square and in our community, but in the context of a treasuring of marriage and a thankfulness of marriage, let Our talk not be merely that of defense and frustration at those give it up, but but we are defensive of it and careful with it precisely because it is so valuable. It is a very great treasure. And let us hold it out and show just how great a treasure it is with the way we talk about it. How do you talk about your marriage specifically? Your spouse specifically, I've touched on this briefly. Are you thankful? Do you esteem your spouse as not only is marriage a gift to you, but your specific spouse is a gift to you? Oh, you know their sins and and they know yours. And we've sinned against each other greatly in our marriages. It requires constant vigilance. But we must give thanks to God that we have someone to walk in life with. When you think of your spouse, do you think in terms of entitlement? 
I will be performing the wedding. It'll be my great pleasure to do this for Connor, Connor and Anna um, in our church. I cannot pronounce her last name, but I am practicing it for the beginning of July. And we have some vows, and I'm pretty stubborn about using prepared vows. So couples, I don't let them like, write their own thing, because it's not just between them. It's between us all, and certain things need to get said, and so they can edit them a little bit if they like, but if they want to own them, then memorize them, pray them. You don't have to write them to own them. Let's, let's benefit from the best of what's out there, and these don't come from the Bible word for word, but oh, kind of, they do. These vows I heard in our premarital counseling class at Moody Church up in Chicago, and we were engaged in going through a premarital counseling course uh, and I, I heard them and had to have them. And we had to use them. Trent, do you take Christy to be your wedded wife, to leave your father and mother and all others to cleave unto her as so long as you both shall live? I do. And Christy, do you take Trent to be your wedded husband, to leave your father and mother and all others to cleave to him so long as you both shall live? I do. Then the vows. With love I take you, Christy, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, to love you as Christ loves the church, to cherish you as I do my own body, to lead you as Christ leads me, with deep respect and honor, remaining willingly sharing every part of my life with you as you are now a part of me, remaining faithful to you with God's help, encouraging you in our Lord and being at your side according to God's word for the rest of my life. That was my vow before God. And Christie's, with love I take you, Trent, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward in submission as you, as we both are to Christ, with deep respect and honor, supportive of you as my leader and as the head of our home, willingly sharing every part of my life with you, as you are now a part of me, remaining faithful to you with God's help and encouraging you in our Lord and being at your side according to God's word for the rest of my life. We printed those vows and we framed them and thought ahead in this and had all of those who stood with us and our parents sign the matting around the vows. It hangs at our entry. It doesn't at this house, actually. It's in a box and it should, so we need to get it out. Um, but for the first dozen places we lived in, it, it always came off, and sometimes I'd be like, that's the last thing to come off. And then it was the first thing to go up. But I can even grow in forgetting these things. I think I skipped a line accidentally almost. And Don't let your vows be things you said 20 years ago. Every line here matters. We said it before God and people. So now you've heard me say it, you can hold me to it, and you can pray that way for me and for Christy. We need it like you need it. Well, these are our vows. How do you talk about marriage? How do you talk about your marriage? How do you let other people talk to you about your marriage? This is so sensitive. It's not okay to air grievances about your spouse with a brother or sister in this room. It is not okay for you to give ear 
to grievances about someone's spouse in this room. There may be emergency situations in which very careful listening and counsel needs to be offered. Be on the highest alert. You are not in that home. We are all tempted to gossip and slander. And as this is our closest relationship and where we are hurt the most, we are all tempted to gossip and slander about our own spouse. I have no specific person in mind here. But if you're wondering if I'm talking about you, then examine yourself. I don't know about all the conversations that happen around here. Even my best friends have started opening up and talking about his wife in a way that was a little bit of an eye roll or a little comment here or a joke here. Shut it down. Alienate yourself from a friend to drive that friend back to his spouse so that he does not alienate her or him by running loops in his mind or her mind when that person is not around. Self-reinforcing feedback in the comments of a friend. And this is not in contradiction with getting help. This is not in contradiction with speaking candidly with a pastor for help. This is not in contradiction with a couple getting help from another couple. This is not in contradiction with confessing our sins together. But you know the difference when you hear it. And you know the difference when it comes out of your mouth. Don't break that dam. Guard this marriage. You start opening up either in confiding or airing grievances with someone else, it is very hard to build that wall back. Marriage is precious, and it is delicate. And for that reason, sometimes getting help is appropriate, and consulting friends is important. But be very careful of ungodly speech, which is good for nothing and no party involved. Prize the institution of marriage, friends. Protect the intimacy of the marriage bed. Now, verse 4b, and let marriage be bed be undefiled. It's a euphemism. It's discreet, but it's clear, kind of like the rest of this section is going to be. Don't worry too much, parents. The times we're living in, no surprise. It's popular to take the public thing of marriage, the public institution of marriage, and to say it's matter, a matter of private opinion. All the while, the private aspect of marriage is, is out there for public consumption and for all. And for this reason, Christians can tend to demonize sex or downplay its importance and only speak of it as a problem and a threat. Oh, that is not how Scripture speaks of it. Uh, let marriage, marriage bed be undefiled. That's tabernacle and temple language. That's the language of God's holy place. It's a holy thing. Let it be, undefi- let it be pure. In other words, there's a such thing as pure sex, a pure marriage bed, without shame and without guilt and for the enjoyment that it was designed for. That's what it's for. That's why it hurts so much when sexual abuse happens and we're a victim of that or when we engage in this outside of the proper context and it comes with all kinds of mind and soul warping heartache and shame. You know, protect the intimacy of 
the marriage bed, a very, very precious and good thing. Not sin, it's something that we sin with. Four ways to protect the marriage bed. Go to bed together. Literally, same bed. Figuratively, you know what I mean. Sleep together, literally, figuratively. If that's not happening, then you don't need me to give you an illustration or appeal any further. This is job number one, uh, to go to bed together. And there may be emotional things and sins between you and going to bed together with your spouse, but you must close that gap and make it happen. Men, make it happen. So go to bed together. Keep others out of your bed, physically. Keep them out of your bed. Uh, emotionally, flirting, off limits. Uh, keep texts with those of the opposite sex to information and coordination. It's kind of how I think about it. This time good? Cool. Uh, hey, going to be late. Um, information, coordination, not relating, joking, flirting, confiding. And agree on that as a couple. Uh, keep them out of your bed in your thought life, your imagination. All right, so go to bed together. Keep others out of your bed. Are we doing all right so far, parents? Okay, make your bed. I'm getting proud of this list so far. Isn't this good? Uh, make your bed. So like I've done it once. Um, she likes to make the bed, and the bed is always made. I'm barking at my kids to make their beds. Um, it's been 20 years, folks. You know, every marriage is a little different, and now you know a little bit about mine. Well, I mean, part of it is she wants the whole thing tucked in underneath. It's hard to get inside the thing at the end of the day, but it's, it is cozy. <laughs> Cultivate your marriage. Make the bed. Cultivate your, your marriage. Watch out for threats to your marriage. Apart from sexual temptation, the threat of bitterness, the threat of bed, oh, bed bugs, that would be good, yeah. Uh, bitterness, uh, bitterness, busy, busyness, the threat of thankless, thanklessness. Be present with each other. Uh, plan a date. With more kids, Christy and I have to work harder and harder just to talk about things together. Uh, there's less space because the kids take up the space in the day. And then there's a lot of conversations to have about the kids. And then you're tired, so it's harder to talk and be present with each other. Keep the lines open. Make a phone call during the day. Lives enmeshed. Live as those married when you're not in bed so that you could be married when you're in bed. Share life together. A great question C.J. Mahaney offers up to men. Men, if you have children in the home, does your wife feel more like a mother or a wife? And... A good mother will want to be with her kids and think of her kids. Plan to be together apart from the kids. 
plan to get out without the kids. And let's help each other do that. There have been seasons where Christy and I would swap babysitting with another couple and alternate months to go out. There are seasons when the kids are just so small. We leave the older ones home, we take the little ones out with us. But invest in this, make the bed. It takes, it takes work. Be present with each other. Be proactive with each other. Be presentable to each other. Make the bed. And for those of you who are not married, especially those of you who are younger, who desire marriage, who are looking to marriage, get ready for bed. Sexual immorality and adultery here, in verse 4, different things. Sexual immorality has to do with sex outside of marriage, and adultery has to do with sex against your marriage. You can commit sexual immorality without a spouse by sinning against a future spouse, against marriage as an institution, and against your own body. Sexual arousal, I think, is the simplest way to provide the broadest sense of what the text is talking about here is for the context of a marriage. So whether alone or with someone else, not your spouse, sexual arousal is a form of immorality and is to be rejected by the Christian. So get ready for bed. These are years in which you are preparing yourself for that relationship. And so practice self-control and discipline and devotion now. It can be very difficult, and it may come with failures and the need for confession and the need for help, which we'll get to in a few moments. But get ready for bed. It's a very serious thing, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So all of us are warned. This is eschatological future end-time judgment here. Don't fall away from Christ. Don't drift from him. Forsake him. And, and, and living in and, and immersed in and in a pattern of sexual immorality is God forsaken, and you will not be accepted into his kingdom. It is a sign you don't belong to him. Take this with utter, utter seriousness. Uh, some should be afraid, for you are outside of Christ, and you are indulging, and you are hiding, and it may well bear testimony that you do not belong to Christ. You simply must turn to him in faith, and prize and honor marriage and your marriage, the intimacy of the marriage bed. Others can even take comfort from this, I think. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So they may be aiming that at us, but that may be aimed at us in comfort because it's personal for God too. If you were sinned against in an egregious way by somebody, God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. He will. He'll make these wrongs right in the end. And he knows what you've experienced. So friends, don't discount marriage. That's what we do with marriage. Moving on to money, briefly. Don't overprice money. Don't overprice money. Now that our hearts are warm to God and his grace, and now that we're struck with the seriousness of sin and, and the importance of the inner life, we can move at a bit of a, a quicker clip here of a negative command and a positive command. Keep your life free actually kind of positive from the life of love of money and be content with what you have. What is money? It is purchasing power. It's dollars. It's coins. It's, it's 
digital records of, of your money, but of course it is more than that. It's what you can buy with it, and it's the what that you can buy with it, which is where it gives us trouble. It's purchasing power, and it is power even to enslave us. We think of money as freeing, and it's true. It's good to make money and save money and spend money and invest money and borrow money and to give money, and all of that is perfectly and wholeheartedly and wholesomely biblical. But with it, we also buy Things We buy what humans can make and what humans can provide. And with those things we buy, if we put it in two words, status, climb little ladders with what we've got, and we buy security against the future. Status before others and security against the future. That's what you're buying with money. And this is why it provides such a, a temptation for us. Why it can be enslaving and not freeing, even if money is a good thing. No, keep your life free. Don't be enslaved by money. We become enslaved by it when we want it and pursue it at all cost, at all cost, to give up anything for it, our integrity, our marriage, our relationships. And eventually you become what you worship. So if you give yourself over to more and more money or whatever that translates to in the context of your business you've built or building or are a part of, you give yourself to the status and to the security that the money provides. Even though so much good is coming from it, you give yourself wholly to it. You will become bought and sold, discounted, and discarded. A sad place to be. Well, how can we break free from the love of money? And it's like, picking a lock under water, chained up. Houdini did that and chucked him over. And 90 seconds later, he comes up having picked the lock. He was all full of chains. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. It feels that way to use that water and seafaring imagery that we're underwater. We've been thrown over and we're trying to pick the lock of this idol and this sin and this passion of ours all wrapped up in it. We have this command for he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because the reason we fall in love with money is because of all it can do for us. But one thing it can never do for us is stay with us and really secure us and give us real status. But who can? The Lord can. Who promises, I will never leave you and forsake you. And he quotes here the Old Testament. A quote in a, in a sermon is good for uh, a grounding a claim in a source of authority. There's no better source of authority than the Bible. Trick is, God never said it in the Old Testament. <laughs> he just said this in a hundred different ways. A hundred different ways. To Abraham, I will be with you. To Moses, I will be with you. To Joshua, it says, he will never leave you or forsake you. But you might as well put it in God's lips because it's his scriptures inspired by the Spirit. He says to you, Christian, having come to Christ... That to which all of those other promises of the presence of God have pointed. Having come to Christ who is yours and who is with you, he will never leave you or forsake you. His unshakable kingdom will shake out all the rest. You will remain for you are his and he will never, ever, ever leave. And this here is worth pondering. This is very worth pondering in your struggles against the love 
of money. Don't discount marriage. Don't overprice money. And don't be discouraged. Our third movement here. For there is a place that we can all go for help. Verse 6. And so now we land it with this quote. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Which comes from Psalm 118 where the psalmist speaks of being pursued and surrounded and persecuted, needing a place to tr- of refuge, needing to trust in God. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Can you say that about your sin? I cut it off. In the name of the Lord. And they surrounded me like bees. Remember those flies? Temptation and sin surrounded me like bees. And they went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. Do you feel like that? But the Lord helped me. And so, dear friends, let us say with the psalmist, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear What can man do to me? If you are not in Christ this morning and he is not your high priest and your forgiveness of sins, then you are helpless against your sin and its punishment. But if you are in Christ and if you would come to him this morning, then you have come to the new Jerusalem. You have come to the city of the living God. You have come to an unshakable kingdom and to a king who can really help. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for this word. We pray for our church to be a a church marked by vigilance in guarding our marriages, vigilance in esteeming and honoring marriage as a gift, that we would not be afraid of money, but use it to your glory for one another's good, that we would be content with what we have and content with what we have to work with and that we would look to you as our great helper, the one who will never leave us or forsake us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.